Good morning. If you've got a Bible with you, uh, go with me to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. And if you don't have a Bible with you, but you'd like to follow along with us, then you should be able to find a Bible in uh, one of the chair racks there in front of you. If you're not familiar with where to find stuff in the Bible, that's okay. We are going to be on page 1002, 1002 of the uh, Bibles that are on the chair racks. And as I'm looking out, I am seeing that almost every chair is filled. So, uh, wow, this is a lot, of, a lot of people here today. We're glad that you are here to be with us. I want to say just a brief word of thanks before I jump into the material that I want us to talk about today uh, to Chris Leto. Um, he is the one responsible for the sidewalk that we have that goes from our parking lot to the door here. That was not originally part of the plan, but we haven't been moving into this building that's kind of being built as uh, fast as we would like. And so Chris said, you want me to get a sidewalk for it? And I said, I would love that. And he said, I'll get it done. And when he said, I'll get it done, he meant it. It got done fast, and so if you could uh, encourage him to get the steel done as well, <laughs> we would all be appreciative of him for doing that. But we are, uh, it's no longer called a sidewalk, it's called Leto Lane, and I <laughs> want to make sure you always refer to it as Leto Lane when you walk on it. <clears throat> all right, Hebrews chapter 2 is where we're going to be. First of all, Merry Christmas, we're finally here the first uh, Sunday of December, we are in our Advent series, and of course, this is the time of year when we celebrate the Incarnation. Incarnation, if that is a big, fancy word to you, it means that God the Son has become human. And for the next three weeks leading up to Christmas, we are going to spend some time in just two verses of the Bible. And these two verses of the Bible are going to guide our thinking both today and for the next two Sunday, Sundays leading into Christmas. And so I want to start simply by reading those verses together. Hebrews chapter 2, we will begin our reading in verse 17. This is what the Word of God says. Therefore, he, referring to Jesus Christ, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This morning, I want us to focus on the very first phrase of this first verse. And I want us to focus all of our attention on this phrase. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. We've titled this series, Just Like Us, 
Because that captures, I believe, the ideas that are found in that first phrase in the beginning of verse 17. And I'll just say, don't let that word brothers throw you off. Brothers is simply a way of saying that he had to be made human. He had to be made human like you and I. And it speaks to the lengths to which God would go to rescue us, Jesus' brothers and sisters. Now, I want you to stop, and I want you to think about that for a moment. I want you to stop and think about this truth for a moment, that Jesus, the Son of God, was made like you. In every respect. When we began this morning, I said that this is the time of the year when we celebrate the incarnation. We celebrate the miracle of God becoming flesh. And when we think of the incarnation, we naturally and rightfully think of the fact that God took on a body. And of course, that's true. But I want you to think with me for a moment about what it means for you to be you. You and everything that makes you you, you are more than a body, aren't you? Our bodies are important. The eternal state when we're with Jesus is not going to be us floating immaterial through the ether. We're going to have real resurrected bodies and a real new heavens and new earth. And our, the immaterial parts of us and the material parts of us are inseparably connected. But you're more than a body. You're more than a slab of meat. You are a unique combination of intangible qualities. All of these intangible things that make you human. So think about all the things that make you, you. You don't like pineapple. You are deathly afraid of heights. For some reason, you always cry when you're mad. You have a great sense of humor, but you're not funny. (laughs) I'm not targeting anyone with that. (laughs) You can have a great sense of humor and not be telling the jokes. (laughs) You feel anxiety when the crowd around you starts to get too big. Your favorite color is orange. (laughs) My goodness, people. This is interactive. (laughs) You don't like to be touched. You have a knack for remembering statistics. The people around you might say that you tad to be on the moody side. You obsess over conversations when they're over. 
You're an INTJ on the Myers-Briggs test. You're an Enneagram 6. The sorting hat puts you in Hufflepuff. <laughs> Do you get the point that I'm saying? You are more than a body. You are all of these things mixed together. Yes, you've got hands. And yes, you can go to the lab and get your blood drawn. But you are more than just a body. You are a unique and complex combination of aspirations and inclinations. Of likes and dislikes of strengths and weaknesses, of tastes and emotions and passions that make you a person, the person that you are. The Bible tells us that Jesus was made like us in every respect. Which means that the incarnation is more than slapping a body on the second person of the Trinity. The incarnation is more than just, just God the Son wrapped in human form, as if all Jesus was was human form, the appearance of humanity. Now let me be quick to affirm that Jesus is fully 100% divine. There was never a time when he stopped being 100% God at any point. But let's be clear that we understand he was also, in addition to that, 100% human. So yes, the word became flesh and dwelt among us as we read this morning. But the word who became flesh and dwelt among us had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Sometimes I think that we fail to give him enough credit for the breadth and the fullness and the completeness of his humanity. We are offering, often dealing with a two-dimensional version of Jesus. And I think one of the, that's one of the reasons why it's hard for us to identify with him at times. Because he's just 2D. He had a body, but he's not a real person. If Jesus had taken a personality test... He would have had one. When he was a child, maybe he was afraid of spiders. He might not have been the kid to raise his hand in class when a teacher asked the question, even though he knew the answer. His favorite color might have been blue. He probably had a preference for the way his fish was cooked. He may have tended to talk to himself out loud. All the many glorious 
things that make us uniquely human. The glorious humanity that is on display in this room with all of its variety and variation and all of its rich inner life. Jesus was made like us in every respect. Let your sanctified imagination run with that a little bit. As I said, he never gave up his deity. He was 100% God all the while. And the Bible is quick to affirm that he was 100% sinless. That he never sinned in thought or word or deed even one time. But make no mistake about it, he was a real human with all the emotions and internal life that real humans that you know have. This is such an important point that Calvin said this, those who imagine that the Son of God was exempt from human passions do not truly and seriously acknowledge him to be a man. It's a 2D version of Jesus that is our conception sometimes. And so this morning and for the next two weeks, I would like us to consider This simple truth, Jesus was just like us. And I'd like us to consider an oft-forgotten dimension of Jesus' humanity this morning. I want us to spend a little bit of time thinking about the passions of the Christ, B.B. Warfield was the president of Princeton Seminary from 1887 to 1921, the year of his death. And Warfield wrote a little book, which you can buy today or read for free online, called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And this little book explores what the Bible has to say about the emotions, the feelings, the affections, the passions of Jesus. Much of what I have to say this morning is drawn from or inspired by that little book. We could spend a lot of time exploring this topic, but this morning I want to hit a few of the highlights for you just to give you the sense, just for us to explore a little bit how the Bible that we often don't read fully and deeply enough develops a three-dimensional presentation of our Lord. First of all, I want us to see Jesus both experiencing and demonstrating compassion and love. Compassion and love. Warfield claims that compassion is the emotion most often attributed to Jesus throughout the Gospels. The Gospels are the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Warfield says that if you wanted to count it out and see what is the, what is the emotion most often attributed to him, it would be compassion. 
And the Bible tells us that Jesus experienced, or, or we can see Jesus experiencing the emotion of compassion when he witnesses human suffering at the ground level. Which is not to say that God is unaware of human suffering, for he certainly is. But the incarnation is God the Son here in the dirt with us, ground level, with a front row seat to the depths of human suffering. The Bible gives us an example of the kind of suffering which drew compassion from him. In Luke chapter 7, verses 11 to 15. In this passage, the Bible says, Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came and touched the bier and the bearer stood still and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother. Now just try to imagine yourself as witness, not two-dimensional on a page, three-dimensional there. We've experienced things like that before as you've been on your way to the grocery store and a road is blocked off because there is a procession coming by in front of you that is led by a long black vehicle containing a body of someone loved. And there are little flags on the vehicles that follow that hearse. And we see that and we have some sort of awareness of what's going on, but because everything is sealed up from us and hidden from our view, we don't necessarily uh, feel it. But there was no hearse at this time. Jesus, as he's entering into a city, sees a group of people carrying a dead body out with a whole group of people surrounding that that dead body, and these people are weeping. They are expressing their grief outwardly. There is no mistaking the brokenness and the sorrow of human suffering. And the Bible tells us In verse 13, that when the Lord saw her, he had compassion. No reason to believe that he knew her prior to that in any way. The Greek word here for compassion, the New Testament was originally written in Greek. The Greek word here for compassion is interesting because while it does mean to have pity or to feel sympathy... It has a root word in the middle of it, which means inward parts or entrails. So if we were going to discuss that rather inelegantly, we would use the term, and I am going to do it inelegantly, 
we would use the term guts. Some of the older English translations, if you've had a churchy background for a while, you heard bowels of mercy. That's capturing this. Compassion is not simply something that Jesus expressed, though he did. Compassion was something he deeply felt. Have you ever seen suffering and felt it in your body? When I was in high school, I saw Schindler's List for the first time. And I had no idea what I was getting into. The horrors of the Holocaust that are depicted in Schindler's List, it is the first and only time I've seen it. It's important that we understand what we're capable of. It's important that we understand the depths of depravity and and the far reaches of human suffering. But I didn't know what I was getting into as a high school student. And when that film was over, I felt physically ill. That's what this word is trying to capture. Warfield calls compassion an internal movement of pity and an external act of beneficence, or you might use the term benevolence. When Jesus sees this widow who has lost her son, and when he can actually hear her weeping, Jesus feels it. He is moved with compassion, and that movement of compassion within him expresses itself in an external act of grace. Imagine him just incorporating himself into the funeral party. Imagine him just walking up to the body, saying, let's go. And giving that son back to his mother. Warfield claims that love lies at the bottom of compassion. And the New Testament gives us a picture in lots of other places beyond this one of a Jesus who does not simply love in the abstract and does not simply love from a distance. He's moved with compassion and then moves towards the objects of his compassion and grace. Secondly, We can see Jesus' humanity expressed in the emotions of anger and indignation. Anger and indignation. We don't want to think about some of these things or don't think about some of these things because we're too godly for the Bible. Each day, you and I experience what are sometimes referred to as negative emotions. Some of us experience them a lot more than others. 
But each day, we experience what has been termed negative emotions related to the brokenness of the world. We experience these negative emotions about the wrongs and injustices that have committed against us. We experience these negative emotions about the wrongs and injustice that we have committed. We experience these negative uh, emotions of anger and indignation when we see the acts of injustice and wickedness that others perpetrate on others. We sometimes express these negative emotions in sinful ways. But these negative emotions are not bad in and of themselves. They are the natural and appropriate response to the brokenness of the world. Several years ago, a bunch of people had a bumper sticker that has stuck with me, and it's probably a political bunk, bunker, bumper bunker sticker. It's probably a political bumper sticker. I don't remember what it was for, so I'm not making a point here. But that bumper sticker said, if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. And there's a truth to that. If we, as the people of God, cannot look out at the wickedness and the brokenness and the destruction of this world and not be angry, then we're not paying attention. Jesus experienced these passions too. He experienced them 100% without sin, but make no mistake that he experienced them. Warfield says this, we should know that Jesus, living in the conditions of this earthly life under the curse of sin, could not fail to be the subject of the whole series of angry emotions. And we are not surprised that even in the brief and broken narratives of his life experiences which have been given to us, there have been preserved records of the manifestation in word and act of not a few of them. Of course, we all know the classic example of Jesus' expression of anger, which is what? Flipping tables at the temple. But there are others. Let me give you an example of one that's maybe a little more nuanced, a little bit less severe or dramatic, but an example nonetheless. Mark chapter 10, verses 13 and 16, it says, And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. Did you hear how I said the word indignant? I shaded the way I said the word indignant to say the word the way you say it and mean it. See, sometimes we read this and we we read, but Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the little children come to me. Why do we read the Bible like that? Stop it. Let's all stop it. (laughs) 
When Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said, and, the, uh, and said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. This word, this Greek word for Indignation carries the idea of angry displeasure. When you're indignant, what are the kinds of things you say? When you're feeling a sense of indignance about the way somebody has treated you or someone in your family, the words, how dare you, often express your indignance. What Jesus is saying here is, how dare you? hinder the children from coming to me as if what I'm doing is much too important. It's grown-up stuff. Now, Jesus has a rebuke for the disciples. He says, you're going to have to receive the kingdom of God like they do if you want to see it. That feeling of angry indignance shows up again in the story of the death of his friend Lazarus. Twice the Bible tells us in John eleven thirty three and verse thirty eight that Jesus was quote deeply moved. When Jesus comes to survey the scene, the Bible tells us on two occasions, verse thirty three and thirty eight, that Jesus is deeply moved. And if you're using the ESV translation, that you might notice that there's a little footnote right next to that phrase, deeply moved. And then the translators have put in the in the uh, uh, margin the alternative translation, which could be indignant, because it's the same word. The Bible here, then, is not just telling us that Jesus is moved. It's telling us he's ticked. And if your Jesus can't accommodate that emotion, you might need to rethink your Jesus. Warfield puts it this way. What John tells us in point of fact is that as Jesus approached the grave is, is that Jesus approached the grave of Lazarus in a state not of uncontrollable grief but of irrepressible anger. And he approaches the tomb in Calvin's words as a champion preparing for conflict. And we're going to talk about the fact that Jesus also experienced sorrow when he walked on the scene here, but when Jesus walks on the scene and he sees the people who are weeping and he sees that there is a man dead in a tomb for three days, he is not happy about it because this is not the way it's supposed to be. And if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. Anger is not in and of itself a sinful emotion, otherwise Jesus would not have felt it or expressed it. Those are dangerous emotions for us because 
they often bleed into sinful expression for us. But make no mistake about it. Jesus knows what it's like to feel a deep-seated anger and indignation at a world that is wicked and broken and hurting. Thirdly, Jesus felt emotions of both joy and sorrow. In the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah paints a picture of what the coming Messiah was going to be like. And in spite of the fact that the picture was very well painted, when he showed up, it defied some expectations. One of the things that he did in painting this picture was to describe Jesus this way in Isaiah 53 and verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We've been talking about the intangible thing that make you, you. That you're more than a body. And part of the intangible things that make you, you, part of your story is the rejection that you have experienced in life. Part of the reason that you are the way you are, whatever that means, is because of deeply felt rejection. We have people sitting here that no doubt when I bring that up, you know immediately in your own experience what I'm talking about, even though I don't know you. Parents, a spouse that's no longer a spouse, children, People who were part of the group that you were so close to. Friends. Part of the reason that you are the way you are, you think the way you think, you make the choices that you make, are in part influenced by those, your experiences, including the feeling of rejection. And Isaiah tells us that Jesus knows exactly how you feel. He knows what it's like to experience the withering gaze of a person that you know despises you. He knows what it's like to walk into a room and feel, I am not wanted here. And the Bible tells us that he was a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. This sorrow is on full display at the death of Lazarus. 
We've already seen Jesus displays a measure of anger at Lazarus' death, but he also displays and feels sorrow. And Lazarus, uh, Jesus' feeling of sorrow at Lazarus' death is not simply a response to Mary's own weeping. In other words, if we're not careful, we will misimagine the scene that is laid before us. Because remember, Jesus intentionally delays coming back to Lazarus, even though he's called. He intentionally delays his return, basically so that Lazarus can die. Which heightens the grief of his friends who have called him and know he can do something about it. So how would we expect Jesus to walk onto this scene? Because now he walks into the scene and he sees a tomb with a stone that's covered up. He sees two of his best friends in the world, Mary and, and, and Martha, crying, weeping over it. He sees all of this happening. And we sometimes, if we're not careful, might see Jesus walking in thing. wait till they see what I'm going to do. Their minds are going to be blown. That's not how the Bible says he comes in. The Bible tells us how he comes in in verse 35 of John chapter 11. Jesus wept. And it wasn't simply because he saw his friends weeping. Better show some emotion here so I fit in. Verse 36 says, so the Jews said, see how he loved him. Jesus is weeping over the death of a friend. He felt it. He felt the death of a friend. He is well acquainted with what it means to feel a deep underlying grief. Though he was a man of sorrows, Warfield warns us this way. He says, it cannot be supposed that Jesus prosecuted his work on earth in a state of mental depression. His coming was announced as good tidings of great joy. He endures the cross and despises the shame for what that's set ahead of him? The joy that is set before him. What are the fruits of the Spirit? One of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. Do you think that Jesus experienced and had all of the fruits of the Spirit in perfection? Jesus demonstrated what it looked like to have a deep and abiding joy in the midst of a broken world. In fact, he did it perfectly. There's no reason to believe that Jesus was not a joy to be around. We should get rid of any impression we have, as Warfield says, that because he was a man of sorrows, he walked around in a state of mental depression. Children flocked to him. People who were on the outside and the outcasts wanted to be around him. 
So much so that he repeated the accusation that was lodged against him. In Luke 7.34, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He was no glutton, he was no drunkard, but he was most certainly a friend of tax collectors and sinners, a joy to be around because of the joy that he evoked in his person. There are many more examples throughout Scripture that I could give of Jesus' emotional life. He expresses a sense of wonder in Luke 7, 9 at a person's great faith. He feels an intense desire in Luke chapter 22 and verse 14. He even feels what I might call anxiety in Luke chapter 22 and verse 40. You say, Jesus can't do that. You can use whatever term you want. But when Jesus is contemplating his crucifixion the night before, and he is so worked up about what's going in front of him that he is sweating like drops of blood and asking his father if there's another way, what would you call that? We got, we've gotten too pious for the Bible. We read verses that say, be anxious for nothing, and we think, okay, I can never experience any sort of anxiety or fear, or I'm sinning. Now, obviously, we can take our anxiety and our fears, we can take those things in sinful directions, but if you're not anxious or afraid, you're not paying attention. There's a lot of stuff to be anxious about, and there's a lot of stuff to be afraid of. You see Jesus in the garden, a bodily response to the psychological fear, terror, whatever you want to call it, submitted to his father the whole time, committed to the mission the whole time, not sinning once. If you can put it together better than that, do it. But put it together. This is a man who feels deeply and experiences those emotions bodily just like you and me because the Bible says he was made like you in every respect. We're almost done. I think one of our deepest desires as human beings is to be understood. What's something you hear often? You don't know how it feels. You haven't been where I've been done what I've done, experienced what I've experienced. And one of, the, one of our greatest longings is, is if there could just be one person who understands me. I want you to know this morning that Jesus gets you. And he gets you and he understands you 
because he wasn't just a convincing replica. He gets it because he's lived it. He understands the full range of the human experience. And we celebrate his birth this month because it signals, if I could repurpose Calvin's words, the arrival of a champion prepared for conflict. It's going down. This death thing is going to get fixed. He had to become like us to rescue us from the brokenness of the world. And we're going to explore those ideas in a little bit more depth next week. But Warfield closes that little book, the last sentences of the book, he closes this way that I think appropriate for us as we think about this and and how this can guide us in our sharing of the Lord's Supper together this morning. Warfield says, as we survey the emotional life of our Lord as depicted by the evangelists, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we are contemplating the atoning work of the Savior in its fundamental elements. The cup which he drank to its bitter dregs was not his cup, but our cup. And he needed to drink it only because he was set upon our salvation. And maybe you're with us this morning and you're not a Christian or you don't know what it means to be a Christian or you're confused by some of this and you may be wondering why in the world we love, like we unashamedly say we love Jesus. Or we gather each week to worship Jesus. And you're wondering, what's up with that? This is why. We don't worship some distant deity who's thrown us a bone. We worship the God who has become flesh and has drunk the full cup of God's wrath so that you and I would never have to taste a drop. How can you know Jesus that way? You come to him the way he rebuked his disciples for pushing back on. You come like a child. You come understanding that there's nothing I can do to fix this, nothing I need to do to spruce myself up a little bit before I get there. I come, I repent, I believe, I'm received. I'm changed, I'm loved. Jesus drank down the full cup of God's wrath and then he hands a different cup to us. It's a cup that reminds us not of God's wrath but of his mercy. He says, this cup represents my blood shed for you. Drink it. We can drink it with joy as often as we do so in remembrance of what he's done. Let that guide your thoughts as we share that cup this morning.